This is the Darren Paltrowcast with Darren Paltrowitz. I've been interviewing musicians, comedians, and all sorts of entertainers for almost 20 years. Joan Rivers, Flavor Flav, Paris Hilton, members of Guns N' Roses and the Eagles, and countless others. This show is about artists and why they do what they do. On this episode of the Paltrowcast, I spoke with television host and producer Mark Summers, legendary singer Engelbert Humperdinck, and guitar hero Ted Nugent. First up is my chat with Mark Summers, who is hosting the Thanksgiving Movie Feast on HDNet Movies this Thursday, November 22nd. Thank you very much for your time, first and foremost. Good day so far? Yeah, Darren, it's been fantastic. And by the way, you realize you're talking to Mark Berkowitz, uh, my real name. <laughs> I actually was going to ask you about that later on. <laughs> Yeah, Paltrowitz and Berger, I said, I got I to talk about that. Yeah, my grandfather came over from Hungary, uh, and he was here for years, and he, his real name was uh, Max Berkowitz, and he thought it was too Jewish, so he changed it to Max Berkowitz. I just thought that was the best story ever. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, where did the moniker Summers come from? Well, I woke up one day, and uh, the son of Sam was discovered, and they said his name was David Berkowitz, and I thought, oh, for the love of God, of everybody uh, out there, it had to be, you know, the guy was adopted, wasn't even his real name, but, you know, Berkowitz, and so my agent called 10 seconds after it was on, I was watching Good Morning America, and he said, you got to change your name, I won't be able to get you a job anywhere, and so there was a DJ in Indianapolis where I grew up, his name was Dick Summer, who I admired a lot, and then when I moved to Boston and went to college, he was doing uh, radio up there. And uh, I just took an S and uh, added uh, it to uh, Summer and became Mark Summers. And, of course, we know some of the most anti-Semitic people in show business are other Jews. When I was Berkowitz, I could get a job, and I became Mark Summers. I started to work like crazy. I, I had a friend, Howie Itzkowitz, uh, very funny comedian, working like cra- uh, trying to work like crazy, couldn't get arrested, changed his name to Howard Stevens, started to work a lot. So, you know, uh, people in our industry and uh, who are of the faith, uh, somehow were uh, somewhat uh, you know negative towards using our real names back in the day, but I, I don't even think that holds anymore. I think you can be anything you want these days. But when I started back in the '60s and '70s, I thought it was a little bit different. I'm surprised that you didn't do the thing where you used the middle name as your last name. You know, I don't have a middle name, which is fascinating. Uh, the, the story goes, I was there, but I was a little young. Uh, that when I came out, my mother said uh, that I looked so strong, I didn't need a middle name. So uh, I'm just Mark Berkowitz, uh, a.k.a. Mark Summers at this point, And uh, I'm the only one in my family that doesn't have a middle name. So there was nothing to choose from. I guess the last Jewish question, if you don't mind, uh, what can you tell me yeah. about your bar mitzvah? Did it have a theme? Was it the only <laughs> bar mitzvah in Indianapolis? <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, no, uh, you know, back in the day, there was there were no themes. Uh, that started many years afterwards. I, was, I got apartments in 1964. In fact, November 7th, uh, so tomorrow, will be the anniversary of my uh, bar mitzvah, as a matter of fact, because uh, my birthday's on the 11th, and we booked a synagogue on the 7th. Uh, you know, it was, a, it was actually a turning point in my life in many ways, and I'll tell you why. Um, I, I liked getting in front of people and, um, and telling stories and, and jokes, but I didn't know about performing. And when I got up on the pulpit and, and was doing my bar mitzvah, it was a very powerful moment for me. And it was at that point that I decided that I wanted to be in the entertainment business. And for many years, I thought I wanted to be a rabbi. Uh, I talk about that in my book, Everything in Its Place. Um, I was so inspired. And then I got into the love of television and radio. 
And uh, the rabbi, who was the assistant rabbi at our synagogue, Indianapolis Hebrew Congregation back in the day, uh, Rabbi Weissman, had originally um, majored in radio and TV and then became a rabbi. So I rode my bike uh, at, at age uh, 13 over to the synagogue, knocked on his door at a 4 o'clock on one day, and I said, can I talk to you? And he said, sure. And I said, I know you started in radio and TV, and you became a rabbi. And he said to me, why do you want to become a rabbi? And I said, because I want to help people. And he said, well, let me tell you something. In the entertainment business, you can help a lot of people a little, but as a rabbi, you can help a, a, a small amount of people a lot. So he said, no matter what you choose, I think you'll make the right decision. And so I chose to help uh, a lot of people a little, and, and that's what I did. So you are hosting the upcoming HD you know, program, uh, programming right there, pardon me. Oh, yeah, Thanksgiving that, movie feast on November 22nd and 23rd. How did that come about? Had you worked with HDNet before? Never. Uh, I, you know, it's always funny. I get some interesting phone calls from people people ask me to do stuff. I can never figure out why they want me. And um, they called and said, we're going to do this whole thing on Thanksgiving, and it's all food-based movies, and we thought it would be great to have you. And I thought, well, you know, if you're going to do food-based movies, why don't you call Bobby Flay or Michael Simon or, you know, uh, Rachel Ray or all those people who are more identified with food. But, you know, for years, uh, I hosted a show that's still the longest-running show on Food Network called Unwrapped, and they thought it would be cool to tie in the Unwrapped theme between the movies and talk about you know, tidbits that involved food or tidbits that involved the movie and the food. And it was sort of a marriage made in heaven, and we had a ball shooting it. And uh, so in between movies, I talk about various things, whether it's wine or chocolate from Chocolat or anything that's going on there, and, and we tie it all in. It's pretty fun. People first, you know, really got to know you on an international basis through hosting game shows, but now you are a very, very, very successful producer. What exactly was that transition that got you from being just on camera to producing? Years ago when I was doing Double Dare, uh, and we moved from uh, Philadelphia to shoot in Orlando at the New Nick Studios, they said to me, do you want to produce the show? And I said, sure. But I had no idea what that meant. And so basically, I went to school uh, on how to produce on Nickelodeon's Dime back in the early 90s and learned about editing and uh, producing and hiring and uh, doing all the things one does. And so I got my sea legs there. And then the next thing I knew, I started to pitch shows to networks, and it started to happen. It was so odd to me that uh, people thought of me as a producer. And so uh, for the last, oh, 10, 12 years, I've been producing shows at Food Network, uh, first Dinner Impossible, then Restaurant Impossible. We did a show called Food Feuds and several others along the way. In fact, Guy Fieri and I were producing a show last year uh, together. And uh, I did a uh, shark special two years ago for Discovery. Uh, they were trying to get into Cuba, and they couldn't. And Ian Scheib, my partner, and I uh, got them into, Cle- or into uh, Cuba. And uh, we, uh, the largest shark ever found on the planet was down there. And we went uh, looking for El Monstro, which is what they called him. And so it's been a really interesting career doing shark specials and food shows and kids' game shows and everything in between. And uh, at I'll be 67 this week, and I'm just I, you know I'm still having fun. I I always look at the fact that I, I've been very lucky and and never worked a day in my life. And I know that you have a documentary that's been touring around. Now, what's the status on that? Uh, it's called On Your Mark, and we're talking to distributors right now. We're uh, soon to make an announcement. We think, uh, we hope, we've got uh, the proper agent has been able to push, uh, push it. Yeah, we took it to five cities and uh, played it to get uh, comments, and we did some re-editing and shortened it up and uh, I think made it move a little quicker. And it was all about uh, me doing this one-man show uh, that uh, we're also having conversations about bringing it off Broadway uh, next year. So, you know, it's a plethora of uh, choices here. 
And I've gotten back to live performing and, and doing a little less producing. Um, although we're about to sign a big deal over to major network that hopefully we'll announce this week. But uh, I, I love being in front of an audience. And I figure maybe three more years. At 70, I'll, uh, I'll maybe stop doing this stuff. But right now, I've got too much energy and too much fun. My wife is telling me stay home. But uh, we'll see. Uh, we'll see how things go. About two months ago, you entered the news again, big time, or at least in, in my Facebook feed, when Burt Reynolds passed on and the, the trip went <laughs> viral again. Uh, did you get a yeah. lot of feedback around that? Well, I got a million phone calls, and everybody wanted me to say negative things about Burt, which I was going to do. First of all, the man passed away. I'm not going to say anything negative about him. Secondly, um, I guess the question I always had is, how are you the number one box office star in the world for five years and die with no money? Um, and so, obviously, bad choices. Um, and the situation we had on the tonight show was bizarre. Uh, people thought it was all set up. It wasn't, um, he kind of went berserk on me and threw water at me. And next thing I know, I was in a pie fight with him. And to this day, it happened in 1994. And to this day, uh, at least once a week, people ask me about it. And it was uh, one of those odd situations, but, uh, People go online all the time, and if you go to Tonight Show, Mark Stones, and Burt Reynolds, they see this commotion going on, and, and it, it looks crazy, and it was crazy. And, you know, that was the first time I met him, and I never talked to him again. Um, so it was just, uh, you know, one of those uh, bizarre situations in my career. Yeah, <laughs> it looks like it, and, you know, sadly, it can be immortalized online. Um, did anything negative come out of that, or it's just kind of like people shared the video and that's it, and people forgot about it. Well, no, nobody ever forgot about it. Let me tell you, I mean, it's always on the top ten of crazy moments on The Tonight Show and most bizarre battles. I mean, I'm a, I've been in more, you know, I get more residuals internationally from people who show that thing over and over and over again. You know, and a Jay called me the next day and said, what is going on? What's going on with you and Jay and uh, you and the American? You know, and I said, look, I was a stand-up comic. You and I started together, Jay, and, and you know, it was survival of the fittest. He was like a heckler, and I wasn't going to let him, you know, get away with that. You know, you see him at one point in the, uh, towards the end of the pie fight, he hugs me and he whispers in my ear, uh, I only did that because I really like you. You know, well, if you really like me, why would you do that? And then uh, during the commercial break, he had a book there, and uh, he said, uh, what's your, I never forgot this, I never told this story, what's your broad's name? I said, excuse me? He said, what's your broad's name? I said, my wife? I mean, I haven't heard that term since, you know, 1948 or something. And so I said, yes, my wife's name is Alice. So he signed the book, you know, to Alice and Mark. And it's, uh, you know, somewhere in the garage in a box. I don't think I ever looked at the darn thing. And then the next day, his publicist called my publicist and said that I was a bottom feeder of show business and that I didn't show the movie star any respect. So obviously, Bert had his problems. Uh, and, uh, you know, he should just rest in peace and be well. But uh, what, a, what an odd man he was. I appreciate that that story that you gave me. If you don't want me to run that, I can keep that quiet. No, you can run it. I, I could care less. You can you can do anything you want. Right on. So, uh, last question I have before my closer is, you know, you've been synonymous with OCD and overcoming it, yet you've also been synonymous with with food. Was there a weird overlap in your career on that end? <laughs> you know, you can't plan these things. You know, um, I always knew from the time I was like five or six years old, there was something odd about me and I didn't know what the heck it was. And I got diagnosed with my OCD on live TV and a show I was doing for a lifetime called Biggers and Summers. And so all the time I was doing double dare, you know, I knew I was 
sort of confused about the situation, but you know, there was no explanation. And, you know, back in the day when I was a kid, uh, nobody even knew what OCD was. So there was no cure or nothing for anybody to do to fix that. And so, no, I, I, you know, once I got diagnosed, once I went to behavior therapy, I was on medication for a while and worked with a lot of good doctors. Uh, I always say I'm 82% cured. I don't think you're ever hundred percent cured. Uh, but, um, you know, I'm able to deal with it much better. And if it sort of creeps in, I'm able to figure out through the tools they gave me, you know, how to get around it. So no, uh, you know, I, sometimes I get really stressed out and I do, the only thing I still do every now and then, if I'm really stressed, if I go grocery shopping with my wife, I get into this thing about reading labels on uh, cans or jars. And, uh, you know, I can't wait to get out of the grocery store because of that, but it's so rare now, um, luckily, because it was a very painful time in my life. I believe it. So I guess in closing, any last words for the kids? Uh, you know, just have fun. Uh, we're on tour doing, uh, you know, Double Dare Live. Uh, go to doublederlivetour.com. Find out where we are next. Uh, have a great Thanksgiving. Tune us in on HDNet on the 22nd and 23rd. Watch some of your favorite movies with your family and watch me uh, talk about the food and uh, the thing goes around it. And uh, I think uh, you can have a good time. So I appreciate your time very much, sir. And uh, hope you get a chance to tune in and watch it as well. Next up is my chat with Engelbert Humperdinck, who I met up with in New York City. Engelbert released a new Christmas album, Warmest Christmas Wishes, last month, which was in addition to a new studio album called The Man I Want to Be. He also has a PBS special coming out soon, The Man Keeps Busy. One of my uh, favorite parts of your career is that a lot of artists will say that they have a multi-generational audience, but you literally do in the fact that Damon Albarn is a fan and the people put together the Beavis and Butthead soundtrack are, are fans and all that. When did you start to notice that you had multiple generations following you? I see them in the audience. I see, I do. I see uh, all age groups out there, you know, and uh, as, as, especially when, when you've been in the business a half a century, you know, and, it's, it, mm -hmm. and then you see young faces too in the audience, people who, who have joined the, the, the Humperdinck uh, chain. You know, and it's so it's so wonderful to see. It's wonderful, and I think the reason why you know my I have longevity in this business is because of the of multi generation. I think three four generations, whatever it is, you know, they come and see my show, and it's given me that uh, a very stable career. Mm -hmm. I think you know if you have one one age group, they they can grow away from you. You know, but I've been very fortunate. Absolutely. Do you remember the first time that you heard like a much younger artist go, that man has inspired me or influenced me? Do you remember one of the first times that happened? Well, people, you know, young, I've, 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 I'll be honest with you, I have heard young people say, you, you, you're the one that started my, my singing career, and that one thing I love because we've loved your style, loved your voice, and, and uh, you, you, you never get... Your, your voice never gets old. Yes. You know, and and uh, because as you age, the vibrato seems to slow down. Yes. You know, but mine didn't. Your mine singing. practically has practically disappeared. And then I'm singing a more contemporary mode now. If you, I feel it seems as though my career is just beginning the way I'm singing. You know, but it is uh, 51 years old. Well, that reminds me. Um, besides what you were just talking about, like you look great. You're still singing as great as ever. Are there particular routines or hobbies or things you do to to make sure that that's the case that you're still great? Yeah. Well, you know, for a while I I, I let myself uh, uh, 
uh, go because um, you know there's uh, there's a lot of things in my head, a lot of things going on. You know, little stress stress values that that stop you from taking care of yourself properly. But uh, when I found out I was going to do a special in Hawaii, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I, I thought to myself, now wait a minute, I, I want the people to see me the way they saw me when I was first began. Right. And so uh, maybe not. As slim as I was when I first got back, <laughs> but so I went on this very serious diet and, and workout routine, and in in less than three months I dropped thirty one pounds, and uh, with this I went to Hawaii and finished my special, and I thank God I, I look, you know, like I used to look a little bit, you know, and uh, hopefully when it does come out people will be surprised. Sure, and that uh, special is for PBS. Did yep. you know that you were doing a special, or did someone come to you and go, let's do a television special? How did that happen? Uh, actually, uh, my manager, you know, Alan Margulies, mm -hmm. uh, set everything up uh, along with the record company, and, uh, and between them, they managed to get what I've been longing to do for a long, long time, ever since I saw Elvis's Aloha special, mm -hmm. and, and Elvis was a dear friend of mine, and uh, I want to tell you that every I watch his show practically every year. Mm -hmm. That that show and it and it just I just made me want to go to Hawaii to do it, you know. And and I did. I wanted to wear white, but I did. I I I didn't have a suit in that in in that color, so I had to go into my regular red um, black suit with a red shirt, you know, that I my normal um, uh, stage outfit. And I hopefully that yeah well. It's a recognized look that I have around. Mm -hmm. But in terms of uh, keeping yourself great, are you big into vocal warm-ups, or is there a specific technique that you follow? No, you know what? I don't have any technique of keeping my throat uh, right. I wish you were here to watch me sing on this, this live thing just now, because it was quite fun. You know, it was fun because it's all very impromptu, and, it, and, mm -hmm. and you know, I, I sang three songs, and... You have to sing in tune and in pitch, you know, and all that, because it's going out to millions of people around the world. Right. And it's a, it was just wonderful to do that, and they had so many reactions so quickly, and and I'm impressed with that. You know, I said, "Wow, you know, it's happening to me." Uh, but uh, yeah, I'm just lucky. Right on. Uh, you mentioned Elvis a minute or two ago, and then famously, you were a neighbor of John Lennon. So it sounds like. You met everybody, and you were a peer with everybody. Uh, well, you look like you're about to say something to that. Well, I, I you know, I, I, Elvis obviously was, uh, I, I, I admired him so much, you know. For the simple reason, when I first met Elvis, you know, normally people shake hands. Well, he embraced me, you know, and I thought, wow, that's amazing, you know. And uh, later on found out that he really liked my music, and, mm -hmm. and I told him that, of course, I'm a big fan of yours. and. And uh, the funny thing was, Elvis uh, uh, and myself were in the service, but he was in the American Army, I was in the British Army, right. and we were both stationed in Germany at the same time. And and I used to, I was a nobody. He was a major star, right? And uh, I used to go into my canteen and put money in the jukebox and play Elvis Presley. Little did I know later on that we'd be, be uh, I would befriend this wonderful talent, you know, that uh, took the world by storm. Absolutely. And uh, 
I was the, I, he also gave me a TCB, one of his gifts, you know, and, and I still have it and treasure it. And so when he did that special, and I thought, I must do, I must do one in Hawaii. So we went there and did it. And, uh, and at the same time, I was able to promote some of the songs that I've done for my Christmas album mm -hmm. on that special, because I know that they release it at certain times of the year. And, I feel, and when it does come around Christmas time, they will throw a few of the Christmas songs into the special, mm -hmm. which which is great, you know, because this, this now it's, I've not only got my own standards that are being promoted that I sing in the show, right? But also uh, a Christmas festival uh, songs. Now, uh, speaking of legends, uh, you were notably, you know, nicknamed after Jerry Lewis based on early in your career an impression that you did of him. Yeah. Did you ever have the uh, experience of meeting Jerry Lewis? Jerry, uh, yes, I, I did. I met Jerry very, uh, many, many times. I've also done his show, and he did my show. And I, uh, I had, uh, we did a little sketch where I had to imitate him in the show, and I, he was amazed at it. He said I do the be he, that I did the best uh, impression of him. And I wasn't an impressionist, I, because when I first started in the business, mm -hmm. you know, I never had any hit records. So in order to get on, you had to be a multi-talented person. So I learned how to do some impressions, and so I so I would incorporate that in my show, and I did it for, for several people, you know, like Sammy Davis Jr., Dean Martin, mm -hmm. Jerry, and, you know, and a few British acts like. Uh, uh, Frankie Vaughan and people like that, you know, I, I put them in my show. And uh, but I don't do them anymore, obviously, because I have so many songs to sing and right. my audience comes to hear my music now. Right. Uh, and speaking of those songs to sing, I remember about 20 years ago when you did a dance album and you were on Craig Kilburn's talk show and all that promoting yeah, it. Yeah. Was that the time something that you thought of, hey, this is a novelty record or... How did the idea to do a dance album come about? Well, you know, I, I'm a I'm a go-getter. I try everything, and uh, uh, when when I was offered this the, the chance to do a, a, a remix of some of my hits on it and make a dance album, I said, "Go ahead, let's do it." You know, I take a chance with everything. I even recorded the Beavis and Butthead, yes, you know, and uh, that sort of thing. And uh, I, I'm a I'm I take a chance. And, and mind you, it went platinum so white. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, that uh, song that you recorded, I believe, is called "Fly Lesbian Seagulls." Uh, lesbian seagull, yeah. Yes. Uh, <laughs> you uh, just mentioned how you will try just about anything, but did you almost say no to that based on the yeah, music? No, really? No. I, actually, the producers of uh, Beavis and Butthead uh, movies uh, came to see me at the Greek Theater in Los Angeles. And I do have a sense of humor, and why, the reason why I did Jerry, you know, uh, that's because my sense of humor took over. Sure. But um, uh, they said, you've got, you've got a great sense of humor. He said, would you like to try a song in our, our movie? I said, what do you mean? Called Lesbian Seagull, would you try it? I said, send it to me, let me hear it. So he, and they sent it to me, I heard it, I loved it, I loved the, the, the lyric content, I loved the melody. I said, let's do it. And it, we did it. Did that lead to potentially like other people seeing your comedy chops and going, man, we should collaborate with him on something like this? Like, did that lead to other people thinking of putting you on novelty kind of things? Well, uh, I, you know, uh, if it did come along, I didn't get to see it because uh, you know, I, 
I've changed managers a few times, and uh, 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 ever since Gordon Mills, who started my life, you know, he started me, gave me the name, etc. Yes, he was one of the best, you know, and uh, I've, I've had a few, uh, uh, you know, in between that have not been very good, but uh, right, uh, I have a very good manager now, and he's uh, uh, Alan Margulies, and he's a very, very fine man, decent human being, thank God. Well, um, your name, you know, was taken, of course, from an old-time composer. Yeah. But then your name itself was uh, uh, used as a tribute. There was there was a professional wrestling character named Oliver Humperdinck. Was that something that ever came your way or people talked about? Is that right? Yeah. In the 80s, he was a manager of a, of a big wrestler. So his name oh, was Sir Oliver Humperdinck. No, but, but there's, a, there's a lot of people... People have been named Englewood after me after I took the name, you know, and uh, and it's it's amazing. Uh, people say my my mother chose the name because of you, you know, and Englewood. Uh, they stuck with Englewood, a long name, <laughs> right? But there's also a ball player. I think his name's Englewood. Yeah. In, in football? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. Now, were you? Uh, I know that you're a real estate guy, but away from all the work and all that, were you a sports fan? I, you know, I come from uh, from Great Britain, and uh, I'm I'm a soccer fan. And a couple of years ago, my team in Leicester, where I where I lived and uh, and lived, uh, they won the the the, the Premier uh, Cup. You know, mm-hmm. and uh, I was so happy because I was I, you know, I idolized that team, and and I was able to hold the cup in my hand and meet the whole team and meet the owners and. And it's just wonderful, you know, that uh, that's the only side, that uh, sports side. But I do a lot of sport. I play golf, and, and I've met a lot of the great golfers in my life, you know. And uh, uh, I do play golf, and I play tennis, uh, water skier. Really? I do martial arts. Water skiing? Yes, I am a slalom skier. Yeah. I, I, I study martial arts and with the, one of the, the number one... Uh, Martial art man in the early years, his name was Mike Stone. He had 91, 91 bouts, undefeated champion, world champion. Yeah. As a matter of fact, we're, in, we're still in touch today. He lives in the Philippines, and he's always. As a matter of fact, he put me on my diet, and uh, uh, he told me what to do and the exercises to do in order to keep it down. Now, uh, with your martial arts background, did you ever have to use that in a fight? No, I've not, I've not had that. One time on stage, uh, some guy tried, and it, I just did a little bit. <laughs> That's fantastic. So, moving back to today, how far in advance like, do you plan your career? Because you know how you know you have this PBS special coming soon. Yeah. You know that you you know. The holiday album and all that, but do you look ahead a year or two, or do you take everything? It's, it's it's always a year ahead, you know. We we, we plan a year ahead, and, and hopefully this 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 coming uh, twenty nineteen mm-hmm. is going to be an excellent year for me because who knows how long I've got left in show business, you know. Uh, but I, I always I, I never try to think uh, I'm going to retire. I don't want to retire as as long as I have a good following and. And people still love me and my music. I am going to keep going. So ultimately, is there something that you wish more people knew about you beyond the music? 
Well, I think they're getting to know quite a bit about it now because, you know, we started with, the, with the, the social media the way it is, especially today, you know, we are streaming across the world and, and people are getting to know uh, know me a lot more and uh, and with the f Facebook, you know, I, 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 I put little things out on a daily basis and, mm -hmm. and uh, to, keep the, to keep everybody in, uh, in touch with what's happening in my life. Right on. So I guess in closing, because I know you've had a long press day, uh, any last words for the kids? Well, for what they up and coming? Sure. Oh, stick to it. It's a great life. Last and definitely not least are highlights from my phone chat with Ted Nugent, who just released a new album called The Music Made Me Do It. This was not my first Ted Nugent interview, and hopefully it's not my last either. The man is perhaps even more entertaining in conversation than he is on stage. Do yourself a favor and listen to the whole interview, as the Nuge gave me one of my all-time favorite interview experiences. Well, the new album is The Music Made Me Do It. How long did you spend making the album? Darren, uh, 70 years next month. <laughs> I have a funny feeling that when you get up every day, the music makes you do it. What a, what a wonderful, joyous celebration soundtrack for this wonderful gift of life. Ain't it, though? Anyhow, you know, I don't really make records. I don't write songs. I, I live this just wonderful, outrageous, adventurous, spirit-of-the-wild, Chuck Berry, Bo Diddley, Little Richard, outrageous, grinding, honky-tonk, boogie-woogie lifestyle. And when I get done running my dogs and cleaning squirrels and you know, planting crops and fixing tractors. Boy, you should have seen me. I'm like, I'm not the guitar player. I'm the damn mechanic. Anyhow, when I get done with these earthly, down-to-earth, grounded, you know, orgy maneuvers every day, I can't pass up my Gibson Birdland. And when I grab it, fire happens. And it, it, I'm a lucky, lucky 70-year-old Detroit rock and roll rhythm and blues son of a bitch and the music does make me do it I mean I, I could have used that title for the first Amboy Dukes record <laughs> it could have been it could have been every title of every record I've ever made because I have this purity I mean it's just as pure as life and death and sex and good food and and ups and downs and good bad ugly fun outrage my the music is my soul and i just unleash it and people gather around me with technical with technical capabilities and record it so that's what this record represents all these years later and let me tell you the band said it best greg smith world's greatest bass player jason heartless motor city madman ultimate drummer they both looked at me one day when we were jamming these new songs and said, you know, if the 25-year-old Ted Nugent showed up, you would kick his ass, because I really, really love and live this stuff, and we just happened to capture some killer new songs. I'm so damn proud of this, I can hardly stand myself. Was that an answer, or was that a, was that a speech? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, but going back to the album, do you have a favorite song on the album? Is it the title track, perhaps? You know, yes, yes, no, and no. <laughs> I mean, I, like, would you ask me which my favorite son or daughter is, or maybe my favorite guitar, maybe my favorite hunting dog? You'd break the other dog's heart. You know, I, people ask me that all the time because I love to talk about my music. I love to talk about music. I love to talk about 
the American founding fathers of the greatest soundtrack in the history of the world, going back to Howlin' Wolf and Muddy Waters and John Lee Hooker, right into Bo Diddley and Chuck Berry and Little Richard and Jerry Lee Lewis. So I'm still in that vortex. I've never left that tsunami of defiant, authoritative music. And people always ask me what my favorite song is. Darren, that's impossible. There's no way I could. I mean, I guess my knee-jerk reaction would be big, fun, dirty groove noise because it's so outrageous. But then I'd have to say the music made me do it because the statement the music made me do it as that as as one pulse with that riff. The riff is, oh yeah, the music made me do it. Not a damn thing I can do. I mean, what else would you sing to that lick? When I when that lick came off my Gibson Birdland fingerboard. I just started singing that. It, it. What else could you sing to? What else could you sing to? Can't scratch fever. Oh, you could sing backstrap fever. Oh, I suppose you could sing can't trap beaver. I mean, <laughs> so it. My music literally has a life of its own, and I, I torture myself on tour every year, trying to pick my favorite two hours worth of songs and. I always succeed, but uh, there's so many children left out in the cold. I, I, I would love to play 87 hours so I could play all my favorite songs, but I, I can't tell you. The, the, the lick on where you're going to run to get away from yourself, how about cocked, locked, and ready to rock? Are you kidding me? I love you too much, baby. What the hell? I mean, how do you, what's your favorite? <laughs> Maybe that's easier. So far, my favorite is the title track off the new record. It's so it's so catchy. How does an old fart like me come up with these catchy licks like I'm a 15-year-old horny guitar player in Detroit with my first loud amplifier? I don't know. I guess I'm just lucky. Hey, I, Darren, maybe God loves me more than he loves you. I don't know. I'm just saying. It is a possibility, but uh, going back to a topic or two that you mentioned, so you referenced Detroit and you referenced the Amboy Dukes, and when the Amboy Dukes were really happening in Detroit, that same scene produced the MC5 and Alice Cooper, and then fast forwarding, you know, 45 years or so, we have Greta Van Fleet coming out of Michigan. Are you uh, familiar with that band? Oh, hell yes. Are you kidding me? Thank God. It's like a, a breath of fresh defiant air in an otherwise sheep cookie cutter formula world of music that makes me want to throw up. You know, I still love everything that Sammy Hager does, but he doesn't really do new stuff. And I love Chili Pepper. I, I love um, uh, everything, uh, classic rock. I mean, I, I love the Foo Fighters. I'm just, I'm just waiting for that, 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 that crescendo guitar solo. I mean, guitar solos, man, you got to have them. That's the, that's the orgasm of the song. Without them, it's short of an orgasm. So, uh, yeah, I pay attention to bands like Greta and, and, and bands that really pound the original, you know, honky-tonk, boogie-woogie, rock and roll, rhythm and blues with a lot of piss and vinegar. So thank God for those guys. Figures they come from Michigan, huh? And another facet of your career that I always found interesting was the reinvention you sort of had with the show behind the music. Did you know that when that episode was going to happen, that it was going to have such a big, you know, impact on your long-term career? Uh, no, and I don't think it did. I mean, I saw it a couple times, but really stop and think about it, Darren. So I'm the constitutional guy. I actually believe that America ought to have secure borders. Wow, that's radical. <laughs> I'm so weird. I actually believe that God gave me 
my individual rights and that the founding fathers just wrote them down so kings and emperors and despots and, 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 and punks wouldn't try to take those rights away, even though our kings and tyrants and emperors have tried diligently over the last few administrations. Being that as it may, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm so uninhibited and I'm so blood and guts, God, family, country, uh, Constitution, Bill of Rights, Ten Commandments, Golden Rule, Ten Commandments, to the best of my ability, by the way. Um, the, I, I want to, I dedicate myself to be an asset to my family, my neighborhood, my fellow man, the good Mother Earth, and all things creation. And in doing so, the majority of the journalistic, God, am I generous to give them credit for that, the journalistic community, especially the entertainment journalistic community, they hate me because I believe in self-defense. I'm on the board of the directors of the National Rifle Association, and I murder innocent animals for the barbecue. <laughs> Stop and think how stupid those attacks are. I mean, you can't be more brain dead than that. No wonder Michael Moore represents my enemies. Um, being that as it may, uh, I, I don't really care about others' interpretation of me. And the music made me do it on, or the, the behind the music VH1. I am the only artist ever, Darren, where they actually went out of their way to interview people who hate me. They've never gone and interviewed people who hate the other artists. They never went to the Grand Dragon of the Ku Klux Klan to get his opinion on Jay-Z. But they went to animal rights people and, and, and you know, militant vegans. By the way, how the hell do you become a militant vegan? <laughs> I don't think that's possible. But anyhow, I love militant vegans. It is hysterical. I chase them with my lawnmower. Anyhow... Um, anyhow, they, they so twisted my behind the music to just try to ruin my reputation, and they succeeded in the sheep community that are easily brainwashed and are so mushy-brained and comfortably numb that they bought the lies that I adopted a 13-year-old girl to have sex with her, and her mother gave me permission? Really? And that I dissed the Native Americans who I genuflect at the Great Spirit's altar in Great White Buffalo, Geronimo and me, living in the woods, hibernation, migration, tooth, fang, and claw, Fred Bear. Are, are you... That's like claiming that Schindler murdered the Jews. <laughs> sure. You, you, the, the, the people who hate me are so out of their mind. I look to the heavens, I go, thank you, God for making my haters so stupid they don't know how stupid they look. So behind the music was a hiccup. Anything that involves hate and dishonesty is beyond inconsequential. 2018, Darren, I had the greatest tour of my life. How does this old guitar player, who's been playing in bands for more than 60 years, six Six oh, I had bands when I was eight and nine. That's 62 years ago. How could I tell you with 100% inescapable, undeniable confidence and certainty that my tour in 2018 was the best tour of my life? The music was so tight and energized. Greg and Jason put such spirit 
and fire and passion into every lick, every song, every concert. The audiences, we were literally one. The Zen gods wish they could become one with the mystical flight of their arrow, like I am with my audiences every night. So when, when people attack me and lie about me and call me a racist and a homophobe and a sexist, and they go nuts with their such predictable, brain-dead, soulless attacks on me, I get a chuckle out of it because I surround myself with positive, loving, honest people who love positive, loving, honest, real music. And I, if I was any happier, I'd squirt through the phone and stain you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Which, by the way, I did to my dogs this morning. They're so happy they can't stand it. <laughs> okay. Well, speaking of being in the in you know the prime of one's life, you know you were still in. I really am. Darren, let's. I, how do you do that at 70? I mean, I, I was duck hunting this morning. I just cleaned some mallards. I'm still wiping the, the, the feathers and guts off my buck knife, and the dogs are completely exhausted. And I have two brand-new knees. I'm supposed to be tired and worn out, and I, I am in the prime of my life. It's, it's unbelievable. I, I, again, I, if I dared get on my wounded knees, because my knees are fake and they really hurt when I get on them, but I still genuflect and thank God every day. And then I made a song yesterday. It, it, it never ends. And then I sleep like a baby on, on fentanyl at night. I don't want to see a baby on fentanyl, do you? No, but thanks. just think how sound they would probably sleep, probably forever. Uh, but anyhow... I have, I think, Darren, the most important statement in this interview is the following. We must admit, and I'm sure we do, that the greatest philosopher of all times was Dirty Harry when he said, a good man has to know his limitations, and you're on the phone with a good man. <laughs> There's no denying that. So in terms Hallelujah. of being the prime of your life, now you mentioned already hunting today. Is that what primarily keeps you in shape? Is that your main exercise? Well, I'm an outdoors guy. I'm like, uh, with, uh, you know, like uh, Davy Crockett, Daniel Boone, Jeremiah Johnson, and Natty Bumpo were aspired to be. Um, not really. Those guys would have kicked my little feeble modern ass. But I, I keep up with them longer than any other human <laughs> because I, I really do farm and ranch and wrangle and mechanic and plumb and, and carpenter and hammers. And I, it, Darren, I can't even believe that I still have all my fingers. Uh, my, my hands right now, if you put them up against a professional gravel fondler, <laughs> my hands would compete with a professional gravel fondler, a man who fondles gravel for a living, because my hands look like an old man who's worked on the chain gang all his life, and I'm so proud of that. And I think that's why my group, right now I got, and it hurts, I got a big old briar right in my trigger finger on my right hand, which is the one that holds the guitar pick. And there's a big gouge in the palm of my right hand, and there's all kinds of scrapes and scratches and welts all over my hands. And so when I grab the guitar, I sound different than Dave Grohl. And Dave's awesome. Love Dave Grohl. But I think I have more earth and blood and guts. And you know how the gladiator, before he battled, he knelt down and grabbed a handful of dirt? Remember that? Sure. Yeah. What's the ultimate compliment you can give somebody? I'll tell you what it is. He's grounded. That's what that means. I kill my own food. I plant my own crops. I change my own oil. I plant my own trees, and I cut my own firewood. 
I live such an aboriginal, phenomenal nature as healer, spirit of the wild, soul cleansing life, that when I pick up a guitar, flames come out of my ass because I, I still am the Chuck Berry son, the Bo Diddley son, the James Brown son. You know, do you know what I mean? Do you, do you really, am I making myself perfectly clear? 100% clear, sir. And, and it's, it, it, you know, people don't, a lot of people nowadays don't even know the, the colloquialism, nature heals. Run into a bunch of people and ask them, so what, what do you think of the term nature heals? And they'll probably squint, you know, unless they've been on a farm or something or unless they're our age. But I still live by that tooth. How about the term tooth, fang, and claw? Find somebody at the mall who knows what the hell that means. What it means is that nature is real, and the lion doesn't lay down with the lamb. The lion eats the fucking lamb and shits his guts. <laughs> and I love the lion, and I love the lamb too, but he should probably work on being more evasive. <laughs> I mean, is, this, is this a fun interview or what? Uh, you know what? This is not my first Ted Nugent interview, and it's always a pleasure. That's what I have to say. Well, I know that. I know. But yes, so the, this is a big, typical Ted Nugent um, uh, expanded answer. Yes, my outdoor hunting, fishing, trapping, shooting, disciplined, clean and sober for 70 years lifestyle is why the songs on the music made me do it and on Shut Up and Jam and Crave Man and all the Spirit of the Wild and, and Cat Scratch Fever and Free For All and the Ted Nugent, all the and State of Shock and the Damn Yank. That's why my music has fire. Because I have fire, because I, I so adore the gift of life that I'm going to take the best care of my mind, spirit, body, and soul. Now I should start working on my hands. <laughs> but luckily I, still have, luckily I still have all my digits, but I am careful. Um, but boy, I almost busted my left hand with a big old, big old monkey wrench this morning. But anyhow, um, yes, the diverse lifestyle that I lead beyond electricity, beyond rock and roll, beyond the typical rock and roll world of sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and celebrity, and all that. And by the way, i got to tell you, I'm not alone. You watch these different interviews on Access TV that Dan Rather conducts with my buddies Toby Keith and Sammy Hagar and, and, and Steven Tyler and all the different artists. Boy, are there wonderful people in the world of rock and roll and music or what? Uh, what a bunch of great people. Uh, and the smart ones don't end up like Amy Winehouse and, and Jerry Garcia and, and the ones who made terrible, terrible mistakes. Cause I'm sure they were wonderful as well. But what a bunch of great people in this industry, and I love them all. And I keep in touch with as many of them as I can. Uh, Kid Rock's a dear friend of mine, and, and, uh, and, and Sammy, I keep in touch with Sammy because we're, you know, I think, did he just turn 70 or 71? I thought he was a year older than I am. Uh, 71. I think 71, yeah. I respect my elders. Be sure you tell them that. But anyhow, um, I tell them that all the time. It's cute. So, yes, <laughs> the answer to your question is, yeah, uh, man does not live by bread alone. And if you continue to connect with the earth in such a hands-on, boots-on-the-ground, honest, respectful, reverential fashion as a hunter, fisherman, and trapper, and you monitor that wildlife as the canary in the coal miner of our environment and know that clean air, soil, and water and 
quality of life can only come from wildlife habitat, you probably would get involved and, and you'd buy a hunting license and a fishing license and a trapping license and you'd take part in the balancing like I do every year. And boy, do you revere that source of life that wildlife provides. Tens of millions of families and billions of people around the world. So my hunting lifestyle has been dismissed, if not downright attacked, in the world of entertainment, when in fact it's the purest environmental positive available to mankind. So that's why my music is so positive and it's so fun and uppity and, and spirited. And, and I, think it's, uh, I think it's really obvious to those who don't condemn me because I murder innocent animals. <laughs> How stupid is that? <laughs> I think I'll go murder some innocent animals this afternoon and give them some garlic and butter. <laughs> <laughs> well, going back to the sports angle, I'm curious if you yourself were ever a competitive athlete outside of hunting or if you were ever like a, a sports fan of the Detroit teams. You know, that's a great question. I was asked that on public television last week. And I, I got to tell you, I admire and revere that athleticism, the warrior, the man in the arena. And boy, there's some superhumans out there. And my sons and daughters could tell you their names, but I can't. LeBron James comes to mind, and Michael Jordan comes to mind. My, my great friend and blood brother, Kurt Gibson, comes to mind. But you know what? I have never been a spectator. <laughs> I went to one baseball game in my life, and it was Briggs Stadium, in Detroit, 1958, and I think Al Kaline and Storm and Norman Cash were playing, which were super, super hero, athlete, athletic heroes back then. I was bored to death. Governor Perry invited Shemaine and I to the Super Bowl um, the night that uh, uh, Janet Jackson had a wardrobe malfunction. We left before that happened. Thank God! Um, and we were just bored to death. Not only that, but I really, I'll go on record, I just don't understand the violence and the concussions and the damage and the mental health conditions that are a result of such violent sports like that. Now, I've watched the, the Pistons when they win everything and the Red Wings when they win everything, and I've been to some uh, uh, Detroit Lions games where they didn't win. <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen them win. But my sons and daughters are such huge fans of those uh, sports that I indulge them, especially when our Detroit teams are winning everything, and we're very fortunate to get down to the owner's suite and, and get the bird's-eye view of these phenomenal athletes and introduce them to my children. They really, really appreciate that. But I can't wait to get the hell out of there and get back in the woods. <laughs> so I've, I, was, I was a killer baseball player when I was uh, 10, 11, 12. I could outrun and jump and catch and throw, and uh, I was really good on the basketball court for the dozen times I went on it. And I was a pretty good hockey guy on the Rouge River when it froze in January back in Detroit for, I don't know, a half dozen games. But I was always so intrigued about getting close to wildlife and understanding my natural role in nature that it was so consuming to me in the mystical flight of the arrow, becoming one with the path of your life. And the marksmanship discipline being trained by the snipers of the U.S. Marine Corps and the special ops and the, uh, all these you know, Green Berets and Army Rangers, my God, how lucky am I. Now, I did race professionally, off-road race with Parnelli Jones and Mickey Thompson for about 12 years back in the 70s. And I won some races, and I crashed a bunch. <laughs> and I, uh, But I really learned the athleticism that is ultimately... Uh, demanded of one in an off-road racing torture test. 
and that was exciting. But again, it was uh, I had such a team that I didn't have to apply extended days and weeks and months of the year to do it. I could just show up and drive because they said I had a natural ability. I think it was because of the rush hour traffic training in Detroit, which I always won, by the way. And I still love that, uh, that uh, higher level of awareness that is athleticism, and especially in uh, horsepower management. But a simple answer to your question, I'm sure you don't want simple answers, but now I'll summarize it. Um, <laughs> no. I, I never, I never really got into those sports, but I admire those that do. Well, yeah, but that's interesting, isn't that kind of fascinating? Because on stage, my God, was I athletic, leaping off those damn amps, or, or, hence the new knees. But yeah, I, I was a maniac, the highest energy, most athletic son of a bitch ever on stage. I think I can, I think I'm, I think I can say that legitimately. Um, but it was applied to my guitar inspiration, the band with Cliff and Rob and Derek and, and, and Jack and Tommy and Michael and all these incredible musicians that I've been surrounded with. So that was athleticism because, like the title of this record, the music made me do it. How do you stand still playing Motor City Madhouse? <laughs> of course you don't. <laughs> right. So two quick questions and then you're a free man, if you don't mind. I've been a free man for uh, 70 years, but go ahead. <laughs> okay, so you were part of my favorite charity single of all time, Hearing Aid, uh, when you recorded Stars. Do you remember anything great about that session? Yeah, I remember all these phenomenal, talented guys surrounding me. My God, watching Neil Schoen and Ingve, um play their guitar solos. But it was really, really frustrating, Darren, because I sang in the chorus, but I'm watching these world-class, phenomenal earth-shattering guitar virtuosos. <laughs> I wanted to play a guitar solo so bad, I'm surprised I didn't start socking people in the throat. <laughs> I really, really wanted to play a guitar solo, um, but there was only so much room on a single song like that. But yeah, and again, that goes back to what I said a moment ago, the great, the nice, nice people. Just nice people in this industry, kind, and they don't, not many of them agree with my politics, though a bunch of them do, but they won't admit it publicly. But I've always got along great with all these guys. You could name a band, I mean, stop and think, the bands that have opened up for me, from Def Leppard and ACDC and Aerosmith and, and Van Halen and Journey and Foreigner and Cheap Trick and Heart. I mean, the world's greatest band, Golden Earring, the world's greatest bands for uh, a bad company. I've played with the greatest bands in the world. And they've always been absolutely kind, wonderful, thoughtful, caring, funny, cocky people. And I love all that. <laughs> right on. So any last words for the kids? Well, yeah, clean and sober is the ultimate party. Drooling, puking, stumbling, and dying. It ain't a party, you goofballs. Um, yeah, you're given the ultimate gift of life by God. You best treat it with reverence and don't put any poison or bad food or garbage into your sacred temple, and you will be the happiest you can be. And thank you, everybody on behalf of all the world-class monster virtuosos that have propelled Ted Nugent music all these years. Thank you for the support. Thank you for the energy. And now, Darren, with the social media, you go on my Facebook, and there's millions and millions of people that celebrate not just the killer music that we all love, 
but they support the, the truth, logic, and common sense that I celebrate in this American dream. So a positive spirit is glowing out there, and to all that, that, that get up every day in a positive way to be as good as good can be while we fight the bad and the ugly to maximize the good, God bless you all. And my final word was go to operationfinallyhome.org operationfinallyhome.org. It is a military charity where we build beautiful custom homes at no cost to the warriors of the United States military for their sacrifices in providing the safety and the freedoms that we celebrate in this unique experiment in self-government every day. Operationfinallyhome.org. Even if you only give them 10 bucks or 20 bucks, we'll quadruple it and build these beautiful homes for the most deserving. OperationFinallyHome.org. Thanks for listening to the Paltrowcast with Darren Paltrowitz on the Pure Grain Audio Network. More information on the Paltrowcast can be found online at www.puregrainaudio.com. Until next time, have a great Shabbos. (laughs) 